this morning's scripture reading from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, beginning with verse 7. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. John, chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and I will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own a sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not in this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You may be seated. Let's take a few moments to reflect together on God's Word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten through second graders through the back door. As I said, we'll be mostly in 1 Samuel this morning. It was a nation that began with such great potential. It wasn't perfect, but it was built on following after God. And with God at its its center, the nation was designed to be like a city that's going to be on a hill which can't be hidden. And so every other nation, as it sees this one nation, would be positively, positively influenced by the nation, its culture, its commitment to God. The blessings of this one nation were to overflow into the rest of the world. And the initial leadership in this nation was was excellent. Again, not perfect, but trying to follow after God, follow after his principles. But the nation eventually lost its footing and then lost its foundation. The successive leaders weren't as committed to the foundation that the nation was built on. They forgot about God, and so the people that they were leading forgot about God as well. In fact, they tried to replace God, or at least uh, limit God's influence on the rest of the nation. And not surprisingly, this nation began to slip. The in God we trust was a slogan rather than a reality. 
and the moral foundations of the nation began to crumble as well. This, this nation originally meant to be built like a city on a hill soon fell into the gutter. It was a, a downward spiral that just continued to pick up steam. And it was just a couple of hundred years after this promising birth of this nation that sexual perversity and a complete lack of respect for human life became so appalling in the nation that the founders would have been horrified. But the people living in the nation presently thought it was normal. Instead of following after God and being governed by laws, everyone wanted just to do what was right in their own eyes. They wanted to live autonomously. The lack of leadership in this nation created an opening. The chaos of the crumbling of the culture created an opening for a leader. It created an opening for a leader who had an impressive outward appearance. A leader who had a big presence, a big voice. And this leader's commitment to God, however, was, was a, an empty shell. The leader would do whatever was right in his own eyes. And in the end, the leader the nation chose looked a lot like the nation itself. This is a fair description of Israel at the time when we turn to 1 Samuel. So much promise. Uh, Joshua comes in as this wonderful leader, and, and the book of Joshua really is just a great testament to uh, one man's faithfulness to follow after God. And then, as I said, he created a massive wake that a whole nation could get in behind and be drawn behind. But then as we get into Judges, the, the leaders don't hold as tightly to the foundation. And so the, the nation begins to spiral out of control. And as the, the leadership went, so went the people. And so by the time we get to 1 Samuel and we turn from Judges into 1 Samuel, everyone's looking for a leader. In fact, you might say from Genesis chapter 3.15, after Adam fell, after the first leader fell, and then God came in and promised there would be another leader. Remember Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. There would somebody would come from a woman. Somebody would be born that we could follow. He would be like a second Adam. And so everybody's been looking for this leader. And here's a nation who's, who's looking for a leader. And the books of first and second Samuel, part of the history of Israel, uh, first Samuel are about three very unique leaders. The first leader is Samuel. You might think of Samuel as the last judge. This sort of military leader who, who leads the, the nation, but mostly it's a regional kind of leadership. And then there's the, the, the first king of Israel. You might call him the winner of the People's Choice Award. His name is Saul. He was the one that the people wanted. He was this bigger than life sort of, uh, individual that everybody said, yes, let's get him. He's impressive looking from the outside. And the third leader was King David, God's choice, a man after God's own heart. He was the second king. And I want to look at Samuel, and we'll just have to read through it together. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want us to look at this uh, downward, very sad downward spiral of the person of Saul. 
and, and hopefully as we look at his life, where there's some things to learn about from our, for our, own, for our own life, several warnings that we would want to pick up here this morning. A fatal beginning. It's my first point. First, cha- first Samuel chapter 8. Let's look at that together. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons the judges over Israel. Verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king. We want a king to judge us like all the other nations. And so Samuel's the last judge. He's been trying to give this leadership over to his sons, but his sons are wicked. And so the leaders, the elders of Israel come and say, uh, we would want a king. We want someone that we can follow. And it's important to note that the request for a king wasn't a negative thing in and of itself. It wasn't out of line. In fact, uh, God had given to Moses in Deuteronomy, here's the instructions so that when you get a king, the king would follow in this particular way. Deuteronomy chapter 17. The problem here with their request was not in the request, but in their motive. I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have heard it said, you know, it's not what you said, it was the way you said it. You ever heard that? It wasn't what they asked for, it was the way in which they asked for it. It was the motive, it was the heart of their ask that was a problem. And and, and the elders' motives are exposed here in verse 5. We want to look like everybody else. See, we're, we're trying to uncouple ourselves from God and His Word and His commands, and we would like to reach out and we'd like to attach ourselves. We'd like to couple ourselves to the culture. And our main desire is to look like everybody else. We look around and we see there's these powerful kingdoms. They have such prestige and such security. They look so great and glitzy on the outside. We want to be like that, and we want a king to help us look like that. That was their motive. That was their heart. And it's always dangerous for the people of God to uncouple themselves from God and decide we'd rather look like the culture. See, trust in God just wasn't enough for the people of Israel. We also had to have this outward look. And that outward look always looked like the rest of the culture. And so the elders' request was was a terrible request because it was uncoupling themselves from the Lord and his leadership. And instead of following after God's voice, they wanted to follow after another voice. This is really a repeat of Genesis chapter 3. We have what God said, and then another voice comes in. And the question for the believer is always, what voice am I going to follow? And so they're going to follow the voice of the culture. And then let's just notice the Lord's response. Very scary, very sobering, verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel then went to the Lord, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, 
For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being the king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they also so they are also doing to you. Now, then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God's saying to Samuel, what the people want, let them have it. Let them follow their own voice. Let them have a king in their own image. Let them have a king who's uncoupled from the word of God. Let them have a king who's emotionally immature. So when things aren't going his way, he gets frustrated and just does it his own way. And then Samuel gives this warning, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. And then this is what he said. And just as you, as I read through these next several verses, just notice how often this phrase comes up. And I just want to circle it. He will take. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run there before their chariots, before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifty and some to plow his ground and some reap harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take, he will take your daughters and be perfumers and cooks and bakers and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. Verse 15. He will take the tenth of your grain and in your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer in that day. I just want you to hold on to eight Verse 18, there will be a day that you will cry out and God will not answer. Now, this is a this is a terrible warning. He's saying when you follow another voice, he will take. He's not going to give life. He's going to take life from you. And he just says it. Oh, he can't say it any more times in these seven or eight verses. He's going to take. He's going to take. He's going to take. You're following after a God who's giving you life. He's giving you a whole nation. He's giving you a land flowing with milk and honey. And here you're going to give yourself over to another voice. And what is that voice going to do? He's going to take. That's why we read John chapter 10. What does the thief come in to do? He comes in to take. He comes in to steal. And what he can't steal, he's going to destroy. He's going to kill it. And what does Jesus say? But there's another voice. It's my voice. And if you follow after my voice, what do you have? You have life. You have somebody who's giving you life, who's giving you life abundantly. Don't follow that other voice. Follow God's voice. Follow Jesus' voice. Here's the people's response, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said no. Just 
just sounds like a two-year-old. No. Look, this is going to be really harmful for you. Please do not lick your finger and stick it into the electrical socket, you know. No. No, I'm stomping my feet. I just don't want to do what you say. That's all there is to it. It's not complicated. It's not hard for you to imagine these people. No. No, I'm not going to do that. There shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. You see that? We want this glittery outward view and that that our king may judge over us and he can go out and he can fight our battles. It's a, it's a fatal beginning. Dark seeds get sown here in chapter 8 that produce very bitter fruit. So a fatal beginning. Secondly, a fatal flaw. Fatal flaw in the leadership of Samuel. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin. This is a tribe. This is a, think of as in an area or a, a state, small state, whose name was Kish. And then he had, he, he was the son of these names. Very difficult to pronounce, so I won't try to do them for you. Notice the end of verse 1. This man was a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. Now let's, what do we know about Saul? Well, he came from wealth. He's handsome. He's young. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than Saul. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than anyone else. Oh, this is the man. He looks just like what we want to look like. Tall, strong, wealthy, prestigious, powerful. When we see him, we're like, yes, we want to look like that. That's the main thing we're, we're mostly interested in. So this must be our leader. And see, the people are concerned about the external appearances. And this is exactly what the world is looking for. This is exactly what our nation, right now at this critical junction, has to decide, what are we looking for in a person? And here Saul just fits all, he just feeds all the cultural desires that these people of God have. And they never stop to consider the condition of the heart. And then we'll see here in chapter 13 and chapter 15, God exposes Saul's heart condition. That the people choose Saul, Saul becomes the king, and then basically God says, okay, I'm going to put Saul in these situations, and we're going to peel back and really see beyond what's on the outside, what's on the inside of Saul. The first test, chapter 13, you can turn there with me. Samuel was the judge. He sort of represented the, the voice of God. And Samuel came to Saul in, in Samuel chapter 10 and says to Saul, here's what needs to happen. You're the king. You're going to lead this battle, and you're going to lead the battle against the, the, the perennial enemies, the, the Philistines. This is, remember, David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. So these are the people that are, the people of God are always seem to be battling against. And he says, I want you to go to a certain town. It's called Gilgal. And when you get there, gather your men together. The Philistines will be there. And you need to wait seven days. And in seven days, I'll come. And then I'll give a sacrifice to the Lord. I'll pray to the Lord. We'll get a plan. And then we'll go out and do whatever God told us to do. But you only have one thing you need to do, Saul. 
Go to Gilgal and wait. That's, that's Saul's first leadership test. Can, can he wait? Can he just do this one simple thing? Wait on the Lord. Answer? Waiting turns out to be a lot more difficult than you think. Some of you know that. And it's such a, it's such a painful description. See, the leadership test for Saul wasn't whether he could fight and win against the Philistines. The leadership test for Saul is whether he could fight and win against himself. He's his biggest enemy. Not external foes, internal foes. Could he, when all pressure started happening on the external, could he wait? Could he trust in God's word or would he trust in another voice? That was the real test. Chapter 13, verse 8. So he waited seven days. He's in the seventh day. He's waiting for Samuel to come. And during that seventh day, Samuel didn't appear to be coming to Gilgal. And then notice this, the people, these are his people, started scattering. So Saul said, okay, I'm I'm losing my army. So bring the burnt offering here to me, verse 9, and the peace offering. And I'll offer this burnt offering. I'm going to step into Samuel's place. And I'm going to hurry this process along. See, God's not coming in time. So I've got to step in and do what God wants, what only God can do. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, Samuel came. Oh. How many of you have done that? If you just waited just a little bit longer, if you just waited to the real, the appropriate time, and Saul went out to meet Samuel and to greet him, and Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul said, well, I saw the people were scattering from me. And I saw that you didn't come within the days appointed. And I saw the Philistines there beginning to muster their army. So I said, I've got to take charge. Now, the reason this is so painful is because it's, it's so familiar. I, I totally understand Saul. You, you notice in verse 11, I saw. That, that's how Saul... Gets his ideas. He doesn't get his ideas beyond what God says. He gets his ideas from what he saw. I saw things. I felt things. So I acted on those things. Not I heard something and I acted on something. You see, that's so easy for our heart to do. I just looked around. I saw the landscape and I had to act. Even though my actions were against what God had said. And so I saw something. And then notice this is a terrible leadership trait. It's very easy to blame shift. And who does he blame? Well, the people first. Here's a great leader. Hey, it's not my problem. It's these people's problems. I'm a great leader. It's just no one's following. I guess who's the problem? The leader. So first, this is a big bus that everybody's going to get thrown underneath by Saul. First, the people. Secondly, what does he say? Samuel, you didn't come. What does this sound like? Genesis 3, right? The woman that you gave me, God. So who doesn't get thrown under the bus? 
Saul doesn't get thrown under the bus because the people are a problem, Samuel's the problem, and then the Philistines are the problem. So Samuel is this wonderful leader. You get to see his heart. Saul is for, for Saul. The people chose somebody that looked just like themselves. Somebody who would easily uncouple themselves from the word of God. And then notice is a very critical phrase. You might want to circle it or underline it. Verse 12. So I forced myself. I forced myself to go against God's word. It was hard, Samuel. It wasn't easy. I had to really think about going against God's word. But somehow I mustered up the power to go against God's word. I forced myself. See, a lot of people force themselves in the beginning, and then it becomes very easy as life goes on. It was hard. It, it, it seemed like a real battle. But as soon as I lost that one battle, every other battle seemed very easy. I quickly began to follow after another voice. It was, it was no force at all. So I, I want you to hold on to that. One thing we're holding on to is that you can cry out to God at some point, and it's too late. He says that, 8.18. Secondly, we're holding on to this, I forced myself. So this fatal flaw, Saul is for Saul. Saul's biggest enemy is himself. And so we can ask these questions that you're asking yourself already. Are, are you willing to be led by God's word even when you have to wait? Even when you see Everything's falling apart. Can you wait? Or does what you see and what you feel dominate over what God has to say? Let's look at the second test. Very similar, chapter 15. Again, it's just like a, a rinse and repeat. So Samuel gives Saul very specific instructions. Now he's, he's trying to fight against the Amalekites. It's another group of people that the Israelites are fighting against. Very wicked people. And he's going against this particular army in this particular town. Uh, uh, and he's against this king, Agag, A-G-A-G. That's his name. Very evil. And Samuel tells Saul, when you go to this particular city, you've got to destroy everything in the city. When you go to fight, you don't come home with anything except for the people that you brought. That's it. No livestock, no people, no goods. Just it's all evil. I want that buried. I don't want to have any remnant of it. That's all you have to do, Samuel or Saul. Samuel says to Saul. So let's just read his actions. Chapter 15, verse 7. And Saul, 15, 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as to Shur, these two little geographic locations, which is east of Egypt. And Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He did devote to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared the king, spared the best of the sheep, of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs, and they, in fact, spared everything that was good, and he, they didn't utterly destroy everything. See, Saul is still for Saul. And then Samuel hears about it. God tells Samuel, hey, let's go and have another sit down with Saul. The word of the Lord, chapter, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel 
I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, a city nearby. And behold, pay attention. He set up a monument for himself. And then he turned and passed and he went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you, the Lord, be, be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And Samuel said, well, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? See, I hear the sheep here and the lowing of the cattle that I hear. Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites. So again, I'm shifting blame to the people. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord God. And the rest we have destroyed to devotion, to devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop it. You get the feeling, okay, stop. I can't, I take, can't take any more of your excuse. You ever been in a conversation? Just okay, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Oh, man, what a chilling moment. And Saul said, okay, speak. Though you were little in your own eyes and you are not the head of a tribe of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the of Amalekites, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen and the best of the devoted things to destruction, to sacrifice. And the Lord, the Lord your God in Gilgal and Samuel said, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice. Several warnings that we need to listen to very carefully. First of all, just notice the self-deception. Why didn't you kill everything? I did kill everything. Well, I think I hear some sheep right around the corner. Verse 13 and 14, verse 19 and 20. Why didn't you kill everything? Well, I, well, I did kill everything. See, I did obey this is this this is just exposes an infinite capacity that we all have for self-deception. Tim Keller describes self-deception this way: knowing something at one level, but then keeping ourselves from knowing at another. How many know this? Everybody, right? You know it, but somehow in your mind, in my mind, in Paul Phillips' mind, I draw some kind of boundary like, okay, but I don't know it. I sort of keep myself from actually knowing it because we don't want to know it. And I would just maybe rephrase that a bit and say, this is my definition of self-deception. Knowing something at one level, but then keeping ourselves from knowing at another because we don't want to do anything about it. Or we don't want to act on it. Nancy, my wife, had a dad who was a five-star fixer-upper. 
So sort of the legend is, is he took parts from a washing machine and fixed a lawnmower. And so I, it, I was just amazing. The guy was amazing. It didn't matter what it was, but if it was anything sort of mechanical, anything handy, you know, King Cochran, and it's fixed. Paul Phillips, eh. I make problems, and then when I enter into problems, I make them worse. I'm, there's nothing going forward good when I get my hands on it. And so early on in our marriage, Nancy, who grew up with his dad who could fix everything, uh, Paul, I hear some funny sound in the car. Uh, I don't hear it. <laughs> Honey, if you turn up the radio, you don't hear it anymore. Why? Why was that? Self-deception. Insecurity. See, see, I've got a, an idol built and it looks a lot like me. And when I'm not going to perform well, I just turn up the radio and pretend like it's not there. How many have done that? How many know a parent? I'm not looking. Don't think you were. I was looking at you. But maybe I'm looking at you. A parent, you see the problem in the child, but the parent can't see it. Everyone says, oh, when little Zachary Phillips or Morgan Phillips... Everybody can see it, but the parent can't see it. Why? Self-deception. I can't have, my identity is wrapped up in my kids, so I, I can't have them being like that. Even though I know they're actually like that, I can't admit it. Why? Because self-deception. Self-deception happens in all kinds of places, and it causes all kinds of difficult situations to happen. April 12, 1945, a town in Germany called Ordruff, I think is how you say it. It was the first concentration camp to be discovered by American troops that actually still had prisoners inside the camp. And George Patton came into the camp and he said, I almost threw up just walking into the camp. And, and what got him so frustrated and fired up is the town right next to the camp. There was a town right next to the camp and they had to know what was going on. But they never did anything about it. And so he marched his army into the town and said, guys, you're all coming out here to the camp. And you're going to dig all the graves for all the prisoners who died in that camp. So he marched all the people out there, including the mayor of the town and his wife. And they didn't dig enough graves the first day, so they had to come out a second day. And when they went back to get the mayor and his wife to do the digging, they had hung themselves. Here was the note they left behind. We didn't know. But we knew. See, self-deception. I know, but I've somehow walled myself off from knowing because I don't want to act on it. I, I don't want to get engaged on it. It's, it's too difficult. It's, it's going to mean something so difficult for me. I can't get involved with that. And it's exactly what God says in Romans chapter 1. Everyone knows there's a God. Everyone. But what happens? Self-deception. 
You pretend like there's not a God. And the reasons you pretend there's not a God are myriad. But it's mostly because I have a behavior that I like, and if there's a God, I can't continue in that behavior. Or I prefer my own voice, and if there's a God, I would have to follow his voice. So I pretend that there is no God. That's self-deception. That's the first warning. The second warning is that the self-deception always gets coupled with blame shifting. We've seen this already, but verse 15, they and the people did this. We had a potted plant, I think, but something that was on the floor. And it was broken. And it was just me, and my wife, and my two-year-old. And I hadn't broken it. And I asked my wife, did you break the potted plant? Nope. So I go to my two-year-old, Zachary. Let's walk over to the potted plant, son. It's broken. Yep. Mom didn't break it. I didn't break it. You break it? I didn't break it. Start walking away. Maybe my foot did. <laughs> Just trying to shift. Happens all the time. Self-deception just leads to shifting the blame. And just notice the root. This is terrible. Verse 12. Why do we do that? Why do you do that? Why do I do that? Because I built a monument to myself. And I can't have anybody threatening me. I can't, like a parent, I can't have anybody threaten my kids because it comes back to me. I can't threaten anybody, anybody can't threaten my mechanical abilities because it comes back to me. We have this monument, and it's a mighty monument. Imagine Saul. He's defeated the Malachites because of God's effort. And the first thing he does is he builds a monument to himself. He... God exposes the condition of the human heart here in Saul. And finally, it's very sobering and fourth warning, chapter, uh, verse uh, 23 of the second part. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being the king. I want to say this carefully. But there are points of no return. There are points the sin comes over and over and over till you, till God says, that's it. Now I want to say it carefully because I don't think it means Saul can't be saved or forgiven, but he can't be king. And there's some things that happen that the consequence, we just can't get past the consequence of that sin. And it may be some of us are right at the edge. And today's the day. You've got to stop. Because the consequence of, of losing your family, of losing your soul, of damaging in some way, it would be so great if... if if it's just one more time, it's a great warning. You can lose something valuable and you can never recover it. 
And so maybe you're at the critical point. You've really got a monument to yourself. You've uncoupled yourself from God's word. You, 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 you self-deceived. You, you know something, but you, you pretend like it's not there. Let's just look quickly at the fatal ending, chapter 28, verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, okay, Saul, still the king, is having, still having to fight the same enemies, the Philistines. He was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, Saul now praying to the Lord, what does it say? And the Lord didn't answer. Chapter 8, verse 18. There will be a time, Samuel says, when you will cry out to the Lord and he will not answer. Notice he cries out not uh, uh, to repent. He doesn't cry out for restored relationship. What does he cry out for the Lord? Rescue me. See, I'm still not interested in the Lord. I'm interested in the Lord rescuing me. I'm still polishing the monument to myself. I'm not saying, Lord, I've totally messed this up. I have no relationship with you. I'm repenting. Could, what, no matter what happens to me in this battle, could we just be restored to relationship? No, I'm still Saul is for Saul. Even to the end. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants, God didn't answer, seek out for me a woman who's a medium. This is a woman who talks to the dead. It's a necromancer, a witch, that I may go to her and inquire of her. See, I, I used to have to force myself, and now what's happening? I go to a witch. See, sin left unchecked. You might have to force yourself at some point, but if you don't take care of it at some point, you end up in the gutter. And today may be the place that, you're, that God's saying to you, you're not, you're not checking yourself. And if, and, and if you don't do something to arrest this right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, by re- repenting and restoring our relationship, you're going to be in this place. Don't go to this place. That place takes. It doesn't give. You don't need to turn there. But in chapter 31, Saul commits suicide. The thief comes to take, to steal, to kill. To destroy. I have come that you could have life. To give. And to give life and to give it abundantly. But when you and I decide to uncouple ourselves from God's word. From God's command. When we get isolated. We start panicking. We obey another voice. And that voice will destroy This is just a little minute and 30 second video. It's a BBC sort of National Geographic. But it's such a such a great picture of when you get disconnected from God's word, you get destroyed. 
Let's watch this and then I'll pray for us. A wolf has finally picked up the trail. The caribou are close. At last, a chance. The hunt is on. The wolf panics the herd, and the weak and young are singled out. is separated from its mother. You're not going to make it. You may be running and thinking you're having the time of your life. And you're just about ready to get devoured. Because you've uncoupled yourself from God's word. And you're chasing after this other voice. And that voice comes to destroy. So my question is. Are you first coupled with the good shepherd? The one that gives life. My second question, if you're like Saul, you've you've really heard from the Lord. You know the Lord. But somehow, by your self-deception, you've still polished this idol that's got your name at the base. Maybe you're at the verge of losing something critical. You could never turn back. Today would be the time. Let's pray. A young calf being eaten by a wolf is a small thing compared to an eternal soul being devoured by the enemy. And Lord, we have a whole chapter of watching this downward spiral of this man named Saul. And it's a great warning. It's a great warning for people who are outside the fold in the sheep that has gone astray. So my prayer is that you would, you would help your people hear your voice this morning and respond to that voice. We're grateful for your word, as difficult as it is on certain days. Would you help us to be people who would go out and represent the good shepherd to our city, to our world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.